Hi there, dear listener. Mickey here. Just stepping in here for a moment to make a couple of brief announcements. First, an apology. I need to apologize for the horrendous recording quality of my microphone for the episodes you're about to listen to. It sounds like I've been submerged in a small tin can underneath leagues of water. Uh, This is not the case. I simply made some error recording. Normally, we might re-record the episode, but we're lazy. So uh, for the most part, I am understandable, but the quality is poor. So my apologies. Second, and perhaps more notable thing to note, is that as is now our custom, we will be slowing things down for the winter, releasing episodes once per month for the next month or three. So uh, do not be alarmed if you do not see our episodes come out as frequently. We will be back eventually with uh, our episodes coming out twice a month, but for the next little bit, once a month only. And with that, enjoy. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague, Mickey Enslicht. Mickey, Ontario is back in lockdown. How are you handling it? Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not too happy. I'm not going to lie. It's been, uh, I've been more or less mood-wise uh, okay during the pandemic, but it's a bummer uh, being in lockdown a second time and, and not seeing family, not seeing friends in person. Uh, so, uh not, uh, you know, I guess it's a fitting way to end 2020, like, you know, total shit. Um, but uh, other than the shitty year, what, you know, it's been great. Uh, what about you, Yoel? Uh Well, yeah, I thought we were going to gonna keep it positive. Um, well, you know, nobody's a fan of lockdowns. Um, obviously, uh, they are now vaccinating people. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that podcasters are considered to be essential workers. So I believe we should be at the front of the line, right? Definitely. I mean, you know, you know, and we, I think we, we qualify at least a couple of dimensions. So podcasters, full professors, you know, for sure, we are definitely, you know, essential workers should be in the front of the line for sure. I'm generally in very poor health. I'd say I'm equivalent to probably the median 75 year old. So I feel like that should bump me up quite a bit. So, well, yeah, vaccine any day now for me. And then, you know, then I could just start going out and partying, I guess. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Looking forward to, uh, to our freedom. Um, So, you know, it's uh, as we just alluded to the end of uh, 2020, uh, this, this horrible year. And uh, we thought we would, uh, Say something positive and, and, and nice. Uh, at least try to remember some of the positive. Glean something positive from, from the, the, this past year. So um, that's, that's, that's the goal today, Yoel? Yes, we're all about the positivity today. Well, we have about half an episode worth of follow-up. Um, I don't know how positive that's going to be. Neutral. Let's call it neutral. And then we're going to try and take it out on a positive note. That's, that, that sounds wonderful. I've already started pre-drinking. Um, I I would have expected no less from you. So, Mickey, what have you been pre-drinking? Uh, you know, I just had some uh, some red wine. I I don't know what grape it is. Um, I'm not sure that the, the grape was actually even mentioned on the bottle label. That's the quality of wine that I'm drinking. Um, and it was a nice big glass uh, to really to finish off the bottle. I mean, just to 
I do my duty uh, to clean the house, really. So that's what I pre-drank. But I, but I, what I'm going to be drinking is uh, is a beer. I've got something from a brewer called Dominion City Brewing Company, which I do not think I have enjoyed their beer uh, before nor tried it. Uh, it's from Ottawa, Ontario. Um, it's an Alouette One, a Galaxy IPA. And you well, we've been doing this podcast for so long that I, I think I even know what that means. <laughs> uh, I think they're referring to Galaxy Hops. I could be wrong, but that is my that's my guess. As you get a guess. Wow, that's uh, that's impressive, and we need to put that on the positive things about 2020 list. We have learned one thing about beer. Uh, yeah, so um, I'm kind of out of character uh, actually drinking a beer today. Um, nice. This is, yeah, I know. I know. I'm glad you appreciate this. Uh, this is a brewery that's uh, from Montreal, I believe, uh, Brasserie du du Ciel. Yes, Does that yeah. ring a bell? Yeah, definitely. Great, uh, great brewery. They even sell, they even bottle the beer and sell it in Ontario, some of it. That's right. Um, yeah. And this is a Disco Soleil, which is a Kumquat IPA. I, you know what? I, I have a memory of that beer. And that I, the memory I have of it is we drank that for our first ever Paul Bloom episode uh, a couple of years ago now. Oh, yeah. I thought that seemed familiar. All right. So it's a throwback. That's right. from the past. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. I remember mm. being uh, being fascinated by the kumquat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still don't really know what a kumquat tastes like. It's a, it's a little bit of a fruity IPA. It's nice though. It's good. Okay, so we have quite a bit of follow up from past episodes that we want to to talk about to start with, right? Uh, where do you want to start, Mickey? But I think we want to follow up specifically on a couple where we got a lot of feedback. So one was the episode a few episodes ago now. Um, where we it was titled Against Academia? Question um, mark. We got a lot of feedback on that, and then we also got a lot of feedback on our episode uh, Racism and Sexism on Campus uh, with Ann Wilson. So I think uh, we want to maybe just kind of discuss some of the feedback, some of the, some follow up a little bit. There's some been uh, some very recent uh, revelations about you know some of the things we talked about in those episodes. So um, yeah, I think we just want to follow up. Right. So let's let's start with Against Academia, the episode that came out chronologically uh, first. Uh, what follow up do we want to talk about there? Uh, OK, so I think the, 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 oh, so we had, we had a, a bunch of uh, feedback on that one, quite a, quite a bit. Um, I think, uh, you know, I don't think it was a controversial episode in any way. I think a, but a lot of people had opinions and different experiences than our own. A lot of people agreed with us. A lot of people said, yeah, you know, totally cool. But that's not what it's been like for me. And this is what it's like for me. And uh, one tweet thread that uh, I'd like to read is by a, um, a listener of ours called, uh, goes by the handle uh, Flotsam. Um, uh, I'm probably not pronouncing that right. How would you pronounce that, uh, UL? Flotsam? Flotsam, right. There you go. Um, so uh, he he has, uh, you know, uh, he follows us on Twitter and comments every once in a while. So I'm just going to read a little bit. It gets kind of intense. So um I was also start reading. Um, I'm sad and intensely envious because your jobs sound wonderful. And I held on to the delusion that all academic jobs are like yours for far too long. They are not. Morning. Incoming entitled rent. In brief, I want to train PhD students, but will never get to. I teach seven courses a year and find it hard to pursue my research projects. But the thing that really gets me down is that I'm, I am increasingly disconnected from my discipline. It's like being an evidence-based therapist in a department of Freudians. It's one thing if your peers do research in areas different from yours. 
is another thing if the ideas of what constitute research is completely different. You know the intellectual stimulation we get we got in grad school from our peers and profs? The same stimulation you still get being an R1 prof? All that is gone for me. It requires monumental effort to stay, to stay somewhat, quote-unquote, plugged in and relevant. I compare my syllabi from my first year here to what I presently have, and I see how far my standards have fallen. But one has to adapt, can't do the same thing and expect different results. I look at the papers I used to write, and it feels like someone else wrote them. Many R1 profs don't know what it's like at a tuition-dependent uni. You train at an R1, you get a job at an R1, you get to train future scholars, and you think that's the academic life. And when R1 profs start whining on here, it really shows how clueless they are. R1 problems are not the same as academic problems. How many R1 pro profs are taking pay cuts, seeing their department admin and adjunct colleagues fired, not getting parental leave? The variation outside the R1 is huge, and I appreciate that you, Yoel, uh, made sure to underscore this point. I am grateful that I have a job. Don't get me wrong. But it is just that, a it's just that, a job that pays the bills. Teaching is just an act I do reasonably well from what I gather. And I'm so tired from class prep and teaching that I have no energy for research. At this point, I'm just waiting to be denied tenure so I can finally move on. That's right. You think every uni granted an extension to their tenure-track faculty? No. I don't regret my grad school experience, but I sure as hell wish I never started. I was surprised you didn't think institutional prestige plays such an outsized role in getting a job. That's the biggest scam in academia. Unless one gets into a fancy program or works with a fancy advisor, the chances of getting a job is dismal. Um, so it go, go, goes on, and uh, the, the tone is, you know, uh, I mean, really real and um, I think uh, sad because uh, it's clear that uh, this listener had different aspirations, different goals. He, he wants he wants the kind of jobs that we have. And um, I don't know, this was this is super eye-opening for me because I'm guilty of exactly what, what, what he says. I'm completely guilty of it. I think the academic life is exactly, I think it's our life. But, um, you know, his thread and, and, and a few others made me painfully aware that, uh, no, this is like, yeah, we're, we're, we're so, so lucky. This is a, 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 no, a privilege to, to have this kind of academic life. Um, and I, you know, it's kind of the, the academic life of lore, of legend, of the movies. Um, and yeah, this was, this was like, I think, heartbreaking. Um, but I'm so glad that Flotsam uh, kind of uh, tweeted uh, because, yeah, I think it was uh, worth him, uh, him or her uh, telling uh, their story. And uh, yeah. What, what did you think of that, Yoel? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm glad that uh, I'm going to say he, uh, I'm actually not sure whether it's a man or a woman, but let's say he chose to chime in with that. Um, and I, I think there is some cognitive dissonance for me in being the beneficiary or like one of the lucky ones in a system that like really treats a lot of people poorly. And I guess that this kind of what I was getting at when we were talking about this in this episode is that there's like a big group of people who are, you know, who didn't end up where they wanted to be and who are in the best case doing just a job that pays the bills and in the worst case, like actively exploited 
um, uh, I would put many adjuncts in that category, right? Where there, when you add up the hours working for like less than minimum wage, and like how do you how do you square that? Um, and for all of the commitment to social justice that you know many academics are supposed to have, I I don't see a lot about that. Like how you how you think about that, and it is something that should. I think it makes me a little uncomfortable, right? Like it's part of the system from which I've benefited. It also has put this dude in this very unenviable position of just feeling like he's being ground down by this God seven classes. I can barely teach, you know, three. I teach three at a time and I feel like I'm drowning, right? So, like, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so he has this line in there, uh, or uh, they have a line in there um, about, uh, you know, kind of gets kind of upset about uh, R1 profs complaining. Um, so I, I, I think the point there is that we should acknowledge that this is like, yeah, this is, we are super lucky, super privileged. And, and so many people don't get to live this, this kind of academic life. They have an academic life, which is really, really different. But, you know, if you have it, if you do have the job, I mean, don't don't rub it in people's faces. I mean, which I think probably was, was what happened in my case. Um, but at the same time, don't pretend that it's a terrible job. Don't pretend that it's this horrible, this horrible thing. Or oh my God, you have another deadline to meet, or another you know more work to do. Like you know, you're doing this out of your choice, and you're lucky you have this position, and 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 be thankful as well. It's not all terrible because it could be a lot lot worse. Um, and and beyond that, it's just, I think objectively a, a good job. You know, at, at least in some in some privileged corners of academia yeah no it's funny that's that's the the curse of hedonic adaptation right so like yes you know this um cognitively but then somehow it feels like the bad things that happen to you are really terrible and the stresses that you're suffering are uh really unbearable and you feel that genuinely and at the same time you're like oh my god i'm so much i, I i'm so lucky compared to how things could have gone to me compared to how people who were probably equally good, but a little less lucky where they ended up. Right. But then like, I don't know, there's, there's a big gap between knowing that and being able to, I don't know, experience it, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I suppose I, I, I didn't think this was at all going to tie into what we're going to eventually be doing in this episode, which is talking about what we're grateful for, what we're happy for and positive for. I think, Occasionally, sometimes reflecting on all the good stuff we have can be you know, acts as a bulwark against this kind of oppressive negativity, which sometimes is real, right? I mean, some, you know, sometimes there's real shit that you got to deal with, and, and, and that totally sucks. Um, but sometimes, you know, it's just regular happiness that's, you know, ups and downs of daily life. And on, on the balance, things are fantastic for you. And you maybe just kind of sit, take a step back, you know, sit back and realize, well, okay, look, you know, look at all these, all these things that happened to me this year or this past month. Um, so yeah, there's maybe a, a bit of a tie in there. Right, exactly. So I, a couple other things that I at least wanted to mention before we um, move on from from this episode. Uh, there uh, is a blog post that I want to shout out, um, written by a graduate student, uh, Cody. Uh, I don't know how he pronounces his last name. Comers, I'm going to guess. Uh, we'll link it in the show notes. Uh, the blog post is called Actually Against Academia. Um, really well written. And uh, I recommend anybody who's interested in this conversation to check it out. But basically, he takes issue with our, I guess you should, 
you could say like tacit assumption that people choose to go to graduate school as kind of like a considered, I'm going to weigh the pros and cons, um, the potential outcomes, uh, the probabilities of those outcomes uh, obtaining and so on, and, and make that kind of a reasoned choice. And he says, it's kind of, I'm paraphrasing, most common to sort of coast into it. And it, it's in some ways the easy choice because when you've been in school all your life and you've been pretty good at it, and then you're at the end of undergrad and you're like, what should I do? Then sometimes the easiest thing to do is just to stay in school, right? Um, why not keep doing what you're good at? And so that way you end up in a PhD that you never really made this careful decision of whether you want to go into it. Uh, you just did it because it was kind of the default option. Do you say that's a, like a fair description of what of what he was arguing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, the argument there is like we're not sitting down rational decision makers saying, you know, adding up the pros and cons of all our options. I think for a lot of people, um, they they kind of just it's the path of least resistance at that moment, and they're not really thinking too much about it, and they just kind of fall into this thing. Um, I think that was his point. Yeah, and funny, like the next episode, our guest was Katie Kinsler. And that was basically her story, right? I was giving her shit about it a little bit where she was just, just seemed like the kind of reasonable next thing to do was just to stay in school. Right. Um, and yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I think, I, I think that his point is really well taken. Um, I think that is true for many people. It happens not to have been true for me, but I think it is true for lots of folks. Um, and I don't think that's a way to make a great decision about what to do with like half of your twenties. That's right. So, you know, it's funny. It wasn't, uh, uh, you know, Cody's description of how people kind of fall into things. Also, it wasn't true of me. Um, so, uh, I actually, at one point, you know, sat down and, and thought about, you know, what, what would I want to do? Cause I, I changed career paths. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be a dentist. That's what I wanted. That was my, I probably revealed that in an earlier episode. Um, but I, you know, that was my life, you know, uh, my, my childhood dream was to be a dentist. <laughs> you know, I'm one of those weird kids sits there at night that they're dreaming about teeth, I guess. Anyhow, so I just, you know, that's what I want to be. And then my last year, uh, you know, my senior year, I'm like, why do I want to be a dentist again? And, and I just couldn't really think of any good reasons. And kind of started considering other options. And then, oh, I like my psych classes. Like, what can you do with psychology? And, and professor was one of them. And I interviewed a couple of my professors and asked them about if they liked their jobs and, you know, what, what were the pros and cons of it? And I didn't very much consider uh, how hard it was to get a job, period. I, I, I did know in advance how hard it was to get a job in any one place. So I was certainly aware of that, but not, you know, how difficult it is to get a job. Um, but yeah, so for me, it was re it really was a kind of sitting down, rationally making a decision. Uh, what about you? Um, well, I, I mean, I don't know how much I understood all of the, uh, possibilities and probabilities involved, but I, I had been working a real job and I was kind of unhappy there and I wanted more autonomy. And I thought that graduate school would give me that, which I was right about. Right. So like, I think I did predict that correctly. Um, I don't know if I did enough thinking about like alternatives to becoming an academic, which I think that's another thing that Cody talks about. That's, that's totally right is if you are going to pursue a PhD, kind of do it with your eyes open about how many tenure track jobs are out there and have a good alternative in mind. Right. So maybe that means, um, taking more quant classes, more stats, uh, so that you could go into that 
as a consultant with your PhD, or maybe it means like learning some technical skills. So you'd be more appealing to a, a tech company. I, I, that's advice that I just generally give to students now is like, don't count on uh, finding a tenure track job because if, if it's that or nothing, then you might end up in something that you're really unhappy with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, I mean, I think, I think that's been a, a big change in how, the way a lot of us talk um, to our students, you know, being certainly more positive of, of other options and we're trying to give them more, more advice, uh, a broader advice about career, you know, about their future careers in general, not just academic careers. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I really liked uh, that we provoked a, a blog, a blog post from one of our listeners. And I also want to give a shout out to, to, to Cody because he had me on his podcast, uh, I think right at the start of lockdown. Um so and he was uh it was really fun chatting with him as well. So I'm glad that he uh he interacted with us in in, in that way. Uh now we didn't get a permission from from this this uh, one of our uh someone who responded with us. So I won't reveal any, any identity, but here's uh s- some other uh DMs we got about this which I thought was interesting. Um so uh you know, I'll, I'll skip the all the positive part. Uh and though she does say first, uh, brown better than Cornell. <laughs> so uh so I, I right away i liked her uh, sad but probably true <laughs> uh, second um i came to academia after 10 years in industry um and i often find it funny that people discuss academia without any reference point more more work hours compared to what more stress, stressful compared to what um Yoel alluded to this a bit on mental health part a bit on the mental health part but i was really missing this perspective of course, quote unquote, industry has has a huge variance, but so does academia. Um, if it matters due to my personal experience in industry, uh, you know, I'm, uh, in Fortune 500, uh, I'm head over here, uh, head over heels in love with uh, head over heels in love with my experience in academia, even though I am at the bottom of the food chain as a grad student, although I'm uh, nearing uh, you know an older age. I don't want to reveal any, any too much, uh, but it's so worth it. I don't even care. Um, and then um, my my final point, though, um, well, it's a pleasure to listen to you. It sometimes feel like a miss that you don't bring in more diversity of perspectives. Uh, two tenured profs talking about how great academia is, that's great. But for a bit more friction, try bringing an adjunct or an assistant prof, a grad student or someone not from North America. Um, uh, and then also the discussion of gender in academia could have benefited from a woman weighing in. All in all, a great episode, and I appreciate everything you do. Thanks. Um, so that was also, I thought, uh, thoughtful, uh, mostly, you know, positive, but also, uh, you know, a little, little, little critique in there as well. Right. Uh, point well taken. And we have been chatting with some folks who are sort of followed, not the traditional academic route after grad school, uh, about having them on. Um, and we're still thinking about like a good way to do this episode, but we had thought of almost an anthology where we have briefer chats with people who followed non-academic routes and sort of asked them about their experiences. So yeah, thank you, anonymous listener, for yes. that. Um, all right, so maybe we should uh, you know, talk about the uh, sexism and racism on campus uh, follow-up, you all? Yes, let's do it. So big news. Um, the uh, one of the three papers that we discussed, this was the Nature Communications paper about mentorship, was retracted by the authors, I want to say yesterday. Was it yesterday? Was it the day before? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, a day or two ago. So like, what, what about December 19th, December 20th, something like that. 
Right, right. I guess yesterday is meaningless without saying what the day it is. What the day is. Uh, so this is the article: the association between early career informal mentorship and academic collaborations and junior author performance. Um, so uh, they published a retraction notice. Um, they published uh, an editorial note uh, along with a retraction notice. Taken together, this all makes kind of a curious package. Um, so I think the process was uh, there was a lot of hue and cry about this paper on Twitter. Um, they, uh, that is Nature Communications, re-reviewed it, got three new reviewers. Uh, the three new reviewers had complaints about uh, the measures that, in the opinion of the editors, um, slash, I guess, the authors of the paper justified retraction. Although in the retraction notice written by the authors, they said, uh, well, we still totally believe the findings. However, we're retracting the paper. So, like, I don't quite know what to make of that. Those seem somewhat inconsistent to me. Um, and then the editorial note basically says, uh, real sorry we published this. Um, we are making some so far, like, not particularly well-specified changes to process to make sure that, you know, if there's research on sensitive topics or that could have implications that offend people, uh, we're going to give it a closer look. Um, and also, we think female mentorship is great. <laughs> right. <laughs> that last bit is... Uh, uh, I sort of laugh, but it's almost as if, like, if this paper wasn't retracted... Um, they should be caring about sensitive topics or they should be caring about the mentorship of women. I mean, if anything, if we take, you know, the original claims of the authors, you know, uh, at their word, that would be, you know, uh, I think ground to then, you know, increase, you know, uh, 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 mentorship, you know, resources for women. Um, so it's just, it, it, that, that last thing was, was, was a bit odd, but that's besides the point. Um, so, you know, what, what are your thoughts of, uh, you know, uh, of the authors themselves, it seems like, uh, retracting the paper after the, the Twitter outcry and uh, the, the the new round of reviews. I'm not clear about how that process worked. I So I don't know how it is that as an author, if you still think that your findings are correct, how three new negative reviews now convince you that retraction is appropriate. And I, I'm not sure what happened there, and I don't really want to speculate about how that may have played out, but it just seems inconsistent to me. So, like, let's set aside that it was the authors who were attracted rather than the journal, and just, I think it makes more sense to talk about um, was this warranted and what are the effects of this going to be? Um, to me, it still doesn't seem that this paper is unusually bad methodologically. <laughs> so certainly you could have complaints, uh, but you have, could have complaints as bad or worse about a whole lot of psychology papers. And it's very clear that the retraction here is happening because of the topic and because it offended people. I And I haven't really seen anybody make a strong argument that that's not the case. And there are some folks who will say like, 
Well, yeah, that's right. And I stand by that as a principle because, you know, flawed research that causes harm is particularly dangerous and therefore we should be retracting it. I, I don't think that's tenable, to be honest, because I think that your perception of harm really depends on your moral and political beliefs. And those are going to vary between people. So different people see harm in different places. And uh, I, I think showing, you know, empirically that harm has occurred, it certainly hasn't happened here. And it's not quite clear how you would do that in a way that would satisfy kind of a neutral observer. So to me, it seems like if you don't, if you're not sold already on the idea that this paper is dangerous, then it has to look like a, a selective retraction because of people's kind of political commitments. And if that's the case, then on top of all the other reasons that you could say psychology shouldn't be trusted. Well, here's a new one, right? Who's going to trust the field that makes their decisions about whether a paper is scientifically valid contingent on whether it offends the moral sensibilities of, uh, you know, vocal critics? It just it, I mean, you shouldn't trust such a field, in my opinion. Well, hold on one second. I mean, so I mostly agree with what you just said, but I want to have just one point of clarification. You said uh, you specified psychology here. Now, is this a psychology paper? I thought this was like a computer science paper or uh, information science paper or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I guess that's debatable. Um, you could say social sciences. Right, social Broadly. sciences. Again, that's, yeah, sure, sure. That, yeah. that makes more yeah. sense. Yeah, let's let's not make this all about psychology. I think you're right. Right. Yeah, but but if you're like, well, social scientists, uh, they totally, as you can see here, um, by their own admission, will retract things selectively if it offends the kind of moral values of uh, some. I, I don't know if it's the majority. Let's let's just stipulate it is. If it offends the moral values of um, some percentage. Uh, of the group, then the paper's gone. It's like, well, why why should you believe those people to tell you the truth about contentious issues? They've kind of they've kind of put their cards on the table about that they're not going to tell you the truth about contentious issues. I mean, actually, I, wanna, I, I really want to steal man this argument because it seems like this is what like s some smart and, and I think well-intended people are saying, um, and that is, listen, we have a measurement issue, and let's for the moment stick to psychology because I can only talk about psychology. It's not necessarily about this paper, but it's about, it's about, it's about, it's about the idea. So um, given that we have such bad measurement issues and we measure things so poorly in psychology, and I think you're right, well that we can, you know, if poor measurement was a grounds to retract a paper, then we should be retracting many, many papers, including many of, of mine. Um, you know, maybe I should start, you know, making steps to withdrawing some of my papers because I tried to make some inference about, um, you know, the, the extent to which someone could follow their own goals based on whether they could hold a hand grip for a certain amount of time. So I've got a published paper on that, highly cited in psychological science, where we we suggest that, um, uh, you know, because of negative stereotypes that exist about women in math, when they're faced with this stereotype pressure, um, they uh, hold a hand grip for less amount of time. And I, of course, I don't care about hand grips. I don't care even about, um, uh, you know, time. I care about what this concept represents. And it, what we argue in that paper is it represents willpower, which, you know, what does that imply? That implies the extent to which people can follow their own goals. But there's so many steps between what I care about and what I actually measure. Never mind p-hacking, never mind the flawed theory. 
Um, but I, you know, I could be initiating uh, a, a retraction for my own paper, you know, and many, many people's papers, right? So I think you're right about that. But to steal man the argument, um, it would be something like this. And that is that, um, okay, measurement sucks. We should be retracting lots of papers. Uh, and maybe we should do that, yes. But at the very least, let's make sure we don't harm anybody. Let's make sure that vulnerable groups are not being harmed by our research. And here's a case where um, a large number of women uh, were, in up, were in an uproar, demanded retraction. And, and I think a, a group of, of psychologists wrote uh, a, a commentary, which I think is that's exactly what this kind of paper demands is a commentary. I'm not sure about retraction. Um, but but nonetheless, you know, a bunch of a, a bunch of people on Twitter, and then probably you know you know in non social media chains as well, were outraged by this paper, and they said this harms women. So therefore, we should have more exact standards. So what's what's the problem with that? Well, first of all, the argument about harm is totally speculative. Nobody demonstrated that it harmed anybody, and I think this is characteristic of when people are morally outraged. The harm is just presumed, right? It's like this is so offensive, it has to be harmful. But nobody made, as that I saw, like a strong argument for how this harm is meant to occur. Is it the idea that somebody's supposed to read this paper and think, "Hey, I was going to go work with that woman, but now I won't"? I mean, that to me, frankly, seems kind of implausible. That's exactly right. Why is it? Why is it, I mean, because because we've just talked about people don't make their decisions that way. Right. Like, really, you pick your mentor based on like a careful reading of the scientific literature that, that it seems it strikes me as ridiculous. OK, you're right. But but we just described how you and I both did do that calculus. So we're weirdos. OK, so we, we did sit down and make the calculation. So the effect size is small. But reading this paper, I mean, I don't think that's so outlandish that so, a small percentage of people, you know, who make decisions like you like like you and I might make them might read this paper and say, huh. All else being equal, maybe I shouldn't work with a woman. So two people are studying topic X. They both are awesome. I hear all kinds of good things. All else being equal, let's go study with the dude. Yeah, I mean, maybe. On the other hand, like we can't, I don't think, assume that what this paper found isn't actually true. And if it were true, then I think we ought to know it. Right. So there's a harm on the other side of as well of like, let's say that it is the case that if you collaborate with more women, you are and I'm going to steer clear of what got them into trouble about like calling these constructs anything other than literally what they measured. You collaborate with a higher percentage of women and, and that is associated with being cited less in the future. Like, let's say that's causal. I think we would want to know why that was if that was going on. Like, that's something that's worth knowing. And that's maybe a disparity that we might be able to address if we knew that it was happening. So oftentimes, the first step to fixing a problem is acknowledging the unpleasant reality that a problem exists, right? And if we don't want to hear the bad news, uh, we're never going to get to the fixing. I, okay. Do you, do you think there's any possible way that th this is how this paper, retracting of this paper could commit harm? And that is because we now are uh, you know, robbed of this knowledge, of this pattern, of this association, um, which, you know, uh, hopefully someone would follow up with in other data sets and replicate and see if this pattern held. But because we are, um, uh, we're now, we don't have this association, it's possible that we can't take any steps to then remedy the a, a real possible problem. So we actually, the retraction of this paper might hurt women. Is that that ridiculous? I mean, it strikes me as not 
much more implausible than the this paper is harmful story. It, at the very least, you could say there's not great evidence for either proposition. And I think more broadly, to me, it does seem plausible to say, well, this whole event makes it less likely that people are going to study things that might be seen as kind of hot button in the future. So they'll avoid topics. And I think that is bad. Um, and it diminishes our credibility with people who might otherwise have you know, listen to us. So if kind of like, because keep in mind that in the US, at least where I know the politics best, most people don't agree with like liberal academics on moral and political issues. They just don't. Right. So we're a small minority. We have to convince lots of people who disagree with us. And if those people are like those social science researchers are a bunch of hacks, essentially, who can't be trusted, it really diminishes our credibility. That's bad. Like, that's kind of a self-inflicted wound that, that we don't have to do that, right? And and to me, that's the most important issue here is like our credibility to speak to socially important questions. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason this is not credible is because the assignment of harm is subjective, and uh, what you think, you know, one can make a case that something is harmful to group X, but one could also make a case that it, it, it's actually, you know, the publication of something is harmful to group X. And one could also make the case that the non-publication of something is, is harmful to group Y, potentially. So, you know, the, 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 the idea here that viewing harm is so completely subjective, they will never be able to agree. And therefore, adding that as a criteria upon which to publish something is a fool's errand? Is that is that the basic idea? Well, I mean, I think there's lots of cases in which like there probably would be widespread agreement, but those papers aren't, you know, nobody's writing and submitting them, right? So for the things where there is going to be um, a, this sort of controversy, I think the harm is going to be much more debatable. And I think taking a step back, it's very clear that the retraction was due to, you know, the political offensiveness of the the perceived implications of the findings. And, you know, if a, a reasonable person is asking themselves, should I trust a field that makes their decisions about what to publish based on whether it offends them politically, you should say, no, probably not. Not at least not when it has to do with these like hot button topics. Like that's perfectly rational to say, I'm going to now discount what these people have to say. And, you know, I, I would be more convinced by by the people with with these methods critiques, if these same people were jumping in whenever anybody used, uh, you know, our social science uh, to make a political argument uh, about, um, let's say, the adversity faced by women in domain X and said, look at all of this evidence that you're citing and the many methodological problems with it. Right. And, it, you know, it's it obviously not happening. Right. And and so it like I, I think it is just like if you take a step back, just so clearly kind of like partisan hackery. And I think in the long run, it's going to be bad for us, for our credibility, like, which is, you know, you, you don't, it's tough to get that back. It's a resource you want to hoard, I would say. My sense is that, you know, our little corner of Twitter, Open Science Twitter, wasn't like wildly enthusiastic about this retraction. Um, you know, I, I, I haven't seen uh, lots of people, you know, retweeting, applauding, you know, being, yes, this is exactly what should have happened. And even the notices that, that you know, for the, you know, just the factual, hey, this thing got retracted, 
did get tons of likes or retweets. Um, again, that's just my view of things. Uh, so my sense is like maybe we're we're hearing our little community speak by their silence. I, am I just reading too much into that? Uh, what is your take? I don't know. I don't know. I actually haven't followed it that closely. Another possibility might be that the outrage moment is just sort of passed and most people are on to the next thing. Um, but I do think that like, if you look at a lot of research with a critical eye, like I, it's a, it's a funny thing for me to be like, I don't want to be too like overwrought about this retraction because I do think that this paper was in like some ways not great, but it's not great in like kind of very ordinary and typical ways. Right. So like I, I saw Nick Brown talking about this on Twitter a day or two ago, right. Where he was like, well, it just seemed like the standard, um, you know, casual approach to measurement that we see in many papers. Um, and it doesn't seem like I, I, you know, I'm sorry, Nick, if I'm misquoting you, but like, you know, not great, but like not dramatically worse than a lot of other papers either. So is that high praise? Not dramatically worse. <laughs> Garden variety mediocrity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just kind of like bad in some like ordinary ways. It's like, yeah, I, I feel like that's most people's reaction. And so like, um, I, you know, probably most folks can't, you know, find it within themselves to get like super upset about this. But at the same time, it's not like, oh, thank God that like just remarkably terrible paper is gone. I had nothing to say on Christmas Day. When you threw all your clothes in the snow When you burnt your hair And you knocked over chairs I just tried to stay out of your way When you fell asleep With blood on your teeth I just got in my car and drove away Listen to me, butterfly You know there's only so much wine That you can't drink in one life But it would never be enough To save you from the bottom of your glass Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. You can DM us. You can at mention us. If you'd rather email, our email is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That will go to both of us. Finally, our website is fourbeers.com. You can find uh, our back catalog of episodes there. You can drop us a line there as well if you would like. Um, if you're enjoying the show, um, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or uh, the podcast hosting platform of your choice. It just helps other people find the show. We've had a couple nice reviews uh, come in uh, over the last little while, which we really appreciate. Um, so just uh, if you're digging the show, just keep those coming. Uh, so Mickey, what are you drinking? Well, I got another uh, beer from Dominion City Brewing Company. This is a called Revival Hour, a clean saison. Um, and uh, yeah, I uh, it's 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 attractively packaged. That's all I can say at this point. 
<laughs> High praise indeed. Um, so I'm just finishing up uh, my beer from from segment one, the Disco Soleil, and then I have a glass of uh, Knob Creek bourbon poured here already, and I'm just going to switch over that to that for segment two, um, which is uh, feel good news, is it not? Yeah, yeah, totally. Just you know, uh, in a way, you can think of this as our like our second, you know, annual war on Christmas special, if you'd like, um, or <laughs> some version, it's a year in review just, yeah. What, you know, and also given how crappy 2020 was, like what, what, what are some positives that we can think of muster? Uh, what, what are we grateful for personally? Um, yeah. In all different kinds of ways. So, uh, well, do you want to, you want to start us off? Yeah. So I'll say, you know, it's, it's, it's weird talking about the, uh, the COVID silver linings because it's with an awareness that, you know, I think neither you nor I have suffered, you know, the, the worst effects of it, right? We have job security. Um, we can work from home. Um, nobody uh, in my family has been, uh, has been ill with it. Um, and I think that's true of you as well, right? That's true. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So then, I mean, I do feel like a little bit of a dick being like, well, here's what's good about COVID. But I, I did, you know, find some some silver linings. Um, and I guess first I'll throw out a professional one is, you know, we had never done remote talks where yeah, I'm organizing our colloquium series um, this this year. And the talks, if we brought in a visitor, had always been in person. And because, you know, we're working with a limited budget, we were able to bring in maybe one or two people um, to give a talk, uh, you know, just flying people in and putting them up is expensive. And uh, now where obviously we're not going to do that, we've been able to have these amazing visiting speakers come talk to us virtually. And yeah, a virtual talk is not quite as good uh, as an in-person talk, particularly for this speaker. But I think that's more than offset by the fact that we've had this like incredible lineup of of guest speakers that we just would not have been able to do under the old system. And I think that's um, kind of made me rethink uh, how do we want to do this, right? So do we maybe want to go to a hybrid model where we have some people, we fly some people in, but we also ask some people to give a talk virtually because I, for me, it's been just a real benefit to, to hear all these people um, come and present their research to us over zoom. Yeah. I, I've also really, really liked that. Um, I, I would, so I think it's, it's good from the perspective of the, the speaker. I mean, although I, I think you're right, actually giving a, a, a talk on zoom is, is not, not fantastic. Um, but I think, you know, saving like the two days of travel, um, makes it much more tenable for, for, for a lot of people. Um, so I think it's, I think in, in some, you know, good for them. I think it's also good for the listener um, in some instances. So for example, while, while I still much prefer uh, attending talks in person, um, it would be nice to have the option of, of attending virtually if I could, because there are times where for personal reasons, I can't make a talk or it's just really difficult for me and I'll just skip it. Um, but if there was like a hybrid model where talk is both live and, and, uh, you know, recorded digitally or presented, uh, you know, streaming, I would, I would certainly take it up every once in a while and I would attend way more talks. Um, so that's, yeah, that, I agree. That, that's a real, that's a real bonus. 
I will, you know, you know, you know, because I'm such a, you know, a negative guy. Um, I have one little negative to this, though, if you don't mind, you well. Um, so definitely, I think overall positive uh, at the Zoom talks. I must admit, I, I really do miss the in-between stuff. I miss the in-between talks, the in-between classes, the stuff like, you know, walking with a student or the, with, a, with a colleague down the hall or down the street or what have you. And there's none of that anymore. None of that kind of, a lot of it's small talk, but it's not all small talk. It's catching up and connecting with people. So yeah, I, I miss that part of it too. I'll, I won't lie. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, and I think you're naturally more gregarious than I am, so you probably miss it a little more than than I do. But but I do. Yeah, I feel that way as well, right? So it's not, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say we should switch over to permanently staying in our houses and doing everything online. Um, but I do think, like, yeah, it's been it's been successful enough and has worked well enough that I think we should think about well, like, what what can we retain from this? Like, what can we like? learn that worked and and keep it even if it's not uh, you know because of the necessity of covid right i i i think or wonder uh whether the zoom talk will be a real real boon to conferences where i mean and there's still that in between time that you're going to miss the informal stuff that i think is really critical but i just think it'd be so much it's so much better to just like be in my own living room or, or bedroom and watch a, a day full of talks and have moments where I'm socializing and not have some of that extra, like the, the travel and the pain with travel. And um, yeah, I, I, I think that might be a game changer. I think we're going to see a real difference post pandemic with what conferences are looking like. Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned that because that's something that I was going to talk about maybe, maybe separately. So you, I remember had a policy for at least one year of only going to one conference, two? Yeah, two. You had a, a two, right. And I was going to way more than that. And like, I don't think I want to do that anymore. Like, I Now that I've had to not do it for a year, I'm like, ah, it feels better, actually. Like, it's too much. It's a grind. This travel is expensive. It's bad for the planet. And I don't think I get as much out of it as I used to. So I guess that's like, it, it, again, if we're talking about pandemics over linings, it's like being forced to sort of re-examine how much the things that you were kind of doing because you were in the habit of doing them are actually good ideas for you. And I would put conference travel under that. Like one or two, yeah, more than that, probably not. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, so for me, it was at one point I, I, I was burnt out of traveling and I just put a limit to the number of trips. And my kids were also young. They're still young, but not as young. Um, but uh, I agree. Uh, I think, you know, uh, it, it was way, it's so much more efficient to just have it all in on my, on my laptop at home. Um, I, I don't think it's the exact same. I think there certainly are things that we miss out on. I think if we can build some systems in place that allowed for those informal networking. Um, you know, so there's gather town, which is pretty good, but it's not quite, you know, you know, right, not right there, but something along that vein, something in that space, I think, you know, people will, will slowly get used to it. And yeah, I, I agree. I, I think it could be a, a better thing. And also I, I, I like this idea of like, well, you know, this time has led us to, to pause and then to question, well, why are we doing this again? I mean, you can, you can say the same thing with journal publishing, 
right? I mean, we've, 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 we've long realized, well, why, why do we have limited number of pages or limited number of papers that get published? That's based on like actual physical pages, which is a small minority now of the way people access their, um, their, their journal articles. So anyhow, kind of a bit of a tangent, but the, the point is that um, sometimes you get these crises that, that make us realize uh, that the old ways of doing things were adapting to a different environment. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we had sort of talked about before the break about areas where maybe uh, people's kind of professed moral commitments don't really like uh, match up with their actual behavior. And I, I think this is conference travel is a huge one, right? You have all these people who would tell you, yeah, I care deeply about the environment. Global warming is a huge problem. This is like the number one problem facing us as a species. Oh, yeah. And I fly to 12 conferences. A year. <laughs> Right, it's just just like it's so inconsistent, and I think we need to think about like, do we need to be doing that? Yeah, totally. I mean, and sometimes uh, you go, you know, you you fly like halfway around the world. You give your twenty minute talk. Maybe you do your cursory, you know, uh, attend maybe a talk or two, uh, 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 you know, other people's talks. Maybe you 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 schmooze a little bit, and that's it. The rest of the time, you're like drinking wine, having fancy food, going on the beach, or something like that. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's totally an excuse most of the time uh, to, you know, party with your friends. And we should just be honest about that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought we were saying positive, you will. We're, we're all just like going back into the, you know, and uh, how corrupt we are, aren't we? Yeah, that's right. We we tried and failed to keep it positive. Mickey, I will give it to you to talk about something truly positive. Uh, well, you know, uh, I, I will try. So I kind of uh, took this challenge a little bit uh, differently. And I was just kind of, uh, uh, was just thinking of things that, you know, reflecting back on 2020 on, on the things that I enjoyed, um, things that brought me pleasure. Um, and, uh, you know, and one could, you know, uh, uh, drill down and categorize that in a number of different dimensions, but I'll just, you know, in no particular order, start with people. Um, you know, so, well, number one, I mean, this is, it always comes back to this for me. And I think for, for many of us, most of us, uh, you know, uh, this time made me, didn't make me realize I knew this already, but it reaffirmed, you know, my, my belief that, you know, family is incredibly important to me. Um, it, it's, it brings me, sustains me. It's who I live with and who I live for. And, uh, I think part of a big part of the reason that, uh, I've been doing faring well in the pandemic is because I've got a family who I love and who love me. And yeah, we're, we're like, a sometimes we, sometimes we call each other the core four. Um, uh, yeah. So we, I just, we have a, I, we have a great time together and, and I, and I, I really do cherish my family and they've been a real strength, uh, this past year and, uh, especially, um, so, uh, you know, in that group of, uh, you know, you know, people, of course, there's also friends who have kind of really sustained me. Um, Yoel, I hope you're not surprised to hear that you're on that list of, of, of my friends, people who have cherished and brought me joy in, in, in the past year. Um, but I'll, you know, I'm trying to name drop some people. I, you know, they're not listening, but I don't care. Um, so Joanne Chung is my neighbor, a good friend of yours as well. You know, awesome to hang out with. Becca Neal, I've got closer with. Rachel Pan. These are all people I've mostly hung out with through you, Yoel. Um, Paul Bloom as well, uh, really, you know, got closer this year and, uh, it's just nice. Um, you know, uh, Jeff McDonald, Liz Page Gould, of course. I'm not going to name all my friends. But people I've hung out with uh, uh, and brought me, sustained me in, the, in, in 2020 were, you know, friends, family, and, and other people I mentioned, but, but others as well. 
I notice a lot of those folks are actually past uh, guests on the show. <laughs> that is true. Uh, it's an open secret that we we invite our friends uh, uh, on our podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's so well. If it wasn't before, it is now. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, so you know, just you know, maybe just staying a little bit with like friends and family. I mean, I know you've had uh, you were able to visit your 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 family, right? Your parents. No, no, I haven't seen I haven't seen my parents since the pandemic. I actually, so I offered to come out there. Um, I was like, you know, I could I could fly out there and then I could spend uh, a week in quarantine before I see you guys. And they were they were very tepid about the idea. So uh, I ended up I ended up not doing it. Um, we do. It's you know I've I've had a similar reaction as you. I think it's kind of made me think about how important. Uh, my my parents and my siblings are in my life and we do video chat like every uh, week or two. Um, and that's been something that I've been doing pretty consistently also because I've like been, been home more. So, so I can do that. Um, and then I guess, yeah, more broadly, like I, I, this is not like a novel, you know, observation to me or anything, but I have lots of friends that live far away from me and this has kind of brought them closer. Like I spend time video chatting with people now that I wouldn't have otherwise, just because I'd be busy with the stuff that you do when there's not a pandemic, right? You, you go out more, um, you have less time at home, uh, by yourself. And, uh, and that's been great. Um, and I, something again, that I hope that I can keep up once things go more back to normal. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that. So when the pandemic first hit, I had a bunch of these uh, getting together with old, you know, university friends, you know, from undergrad and grad school and like different, a series of these little kind of get togethers. Uh, but they kind of faded away uh, as you know, the pandemic started we're in month 10. Um, have you ma- been able to maintain some of these, uh, some of these conversations? Yeah. Yeah, some of them. So typically with the people that I already had a strong connection with. Um, so these might be like conference friends that I would otherwise see once or twice a year um, at, at conferences or, um, you know, friends from grad school. So, yeah, I think um, with the with the right people, I could see this being something that keeps going kind of indefinitely. I hope at least. Yeah, yeah, that that, that really is nice. Um, okay, another, another, you know, kind of in the category of people for me, and, and this will surprise you, UL, and probably everyone who sees my Twitter presence in the past few years, I'm actually going to praise Twitter, like just like a tiny little bit, because it's mostly a shithole. Um, it mostly is shit, and I do not recommend anyone go on. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've been uh, really pleased by, you know, I would say like small acts of kindness or big acts of kindness that that I see on Twitter. Um, and, and they're nice. I mean, they're, they're really, you know, they warm my heart. So, you know, um, one thing that's really nice about Twitter is when someone typically, you know, especially if they're their early career, if they have a, a paper published, like people are genuinely happy for that, for that person. And they'll retweet it and like it and congratulations. And like, it's a real spirit of generosity there, which I really like. Um, someone announces they've got a, gotten a job or gotten a job interview or gotten tenure. People just, um, uh, people really kind of rise to congratulate that person. I just like, it's so nice to, uh, to see that. Um, and also I think we have been um, a witness and, and, and the re- recipient of, of Twitter kindness uh, over the past year. Um, 
So, uh, you know, I, people have reached out to us uh, over Twitter offering to buy us beer. Uh, you know, years ago, we asked for beer donations. Uh, and that was super nice that people did that. And actually, uh, I'll probably thank some people who've done that. Uh, but we've discovered that people cannot ship beer outside of Canada. Even outside of Ontario, it's hard to actually send us beer in the mail. But we still have people every once in a while, um, uh, you know, DMing us and offering us beer. So uh, a listener named Glassby Norwood, um, who I believe is from North Carolina, uh, you know, was offered and we got the best beer in North Carolina. I really want to say, you know, you guys have been like a highlight of my year. I want to send you some beer. And we're like, oh, dude, thanks so much for listening. But, you know, we, we can't. So it's nice. Um, we are our, 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 the art for our podcast uh, our, and our Twitter handle was designed by a listener who we found on Twitter. Uh, who found us on Twitter and just reached out and, and said, hey, I, you know, I'm a designer and Olga Pope. Um, and she did that for us. So, it's, you know, small acts or big acts of kindness, which are they're just nice. And, and, and I think I appreciate witnessing them. And of course, I also appreciate uh, being the recipient of, of that kindness. And even in my cold heart, Yoel, I'm like inspired by this. And I'm like, maybe as a New Year's resolution, I will... You know, I, I occasionally, I will definitely like, you know, uh, laud people's papers by saying, you know, this looks fantastic, looks great. But I've never done a Twitter, a tweet thread about someone else's paper. And I think, you know, if I truly feel that way and I think it's positive, why not? Why not do that for someone? I mean, a legitimate positive feeling, but also an act of kindness. I, well, I think that's a great uh, New Year's resolution. And uh, I will... Uh, hold you to it. You know, if you haven't tweeted about somebody else's paper uh, by the end of January, you'll hear about it from me. All right. I, I will. Uh, I, I will not, you know, positively tweet about your papers, though. That's that's certainly not happening. I second that. Uh, and, you know, for all the like bad stuff that that we say about Twitter, uh, yeah, it's more that you kind of see it going by. Right. So like in our interactions with listeners uh, on the, the show's account, it's been extremely positive and we've had really like, I mean, the, the first half of the show, you, we spent quite a bit of it talking about Twitter, Twitter feedback. Right. And it's interesting, informative, useful, fun stuff that we get from our listeners that way. And the reason that I still log on every day is that I see things on there that are like interesting and useful and informative. And then there's also a bunch of garbage and adults <laughs> acting like 12 year olds but like whatever right like if it really if the bad outweighed the good i wouldn't come back actually speaking of positives and also twitter um so uh you know a podcast that has brought me joy this year is um locked and reported uh bar podcast with jesse single and katie herzog and what i like about that podcast is well first of all it's hilarious and katie is so funny she makes fun of jesse like endlessly, and and he's a good sport about it, and uh, she, yeah, I think it's they have a really nice rapport, but also they report on all the Twitter craziness, the Michigas on Twitter, and it's kind of like a digest, a weekly digest of, of the Twitter insanity, and I can just get it in like one short little sitting, and then I don't have to like engage and be outraged. So I feel they're doing a real service for people like me. Yeah, I know. That's funny that you say that. I use it. I, I listen as well. Um, I use it exactly the same way. And it's really allowed me to like disengage from like the craziest of the Twitter stuff because I know that I'll get the kind of summary version um, via their podcast. And uh, yeah, I agree. It's uh, a delight to listen to. Katie is hilarious. Um, and uh, if you guys uh, have not 
listen to this show, um, check it out, uh, Blocked and Reported. Uh, you can uh, listen to a lot of the episodes for free. They also have a Patreon kind of subscription where they have member-only episodes as well. So if you really get into them, uh, you can do that. But uh, but yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have Jesse back, aren't we? Isn't that the yes? Plan? I, I I think we will. Uh, he's got a new book coming out. Um, uh, the name slips me. Uh, it's about I think it's about psychology and about the, the quick fix. I think it's called or something like that. That's right. That's right. We're, yeah, so so we're looking forward to that, and and yeah, we really should have Katie on too because she's so funny. Oh my god, I want to have I want to have Katie on just like to tell us all the crazy stuff about Jesse, like just a whole hour of making fun of Jesse and good in good right. fun, of course. Right, um, right, just the inside dirt. All right, Katie, if you're listening, doors open. Email us. Um, but you know, one thing that has, I mean, just sustained me uh, completely is television. I mean, I watch more television now than I think I have ever watched, except, you know, for that period, like, uh, you know, from birth, essentially, till like 18, when, when you know, parents were pretending to be worried about how, how, how many hours their, their kids were watching. But like, I was, I think I was, I watched like six, eight hours a day of television growing up. Um, and I can still recite what was, you know, on NBC on Thursday nights, like for, for my adolescence. <laughs> But so, so anyway, so I, I, I've, I've gone to TV, I'm streaming TV, not um, network TV. And I just want to put out a shout out to just a few shows that, um, that I just adored. Um, so, uh, well, one I just, just discovered, maybe I bet you, you know, this show, a uh, big mouth. Um, it's uh, an animated series with John Mulaney and Maya Rudolph and Jason Mantzoukas. Do you know that show? You well? Yeah, I know the show, but uh, I haven't watched much of it. Oh my God. It is so hilarious. It's essentially about puberty. Um, and these, you know, pre-adolescent kids, you know, going through puberty and they've, um, but it's so dirty and raunchy and hilarious. Uh, I mean, I mean, I laugh, I burst out loud laughing every single episode. Um, and, and Jay and John Mulaney is, is, and Maya Rudolph are hilarious both as their, their characters, but they also play these Hormone demons, which are essentially their ids, they're like their their deepest desires, and they're just their desires are pretty out there. Um, so I uh, totally recommend that show. Just got into it. Um, okay, another show that uh, I'm, I'm actually seeing it on a lot of uh, best of 2020 lists, uh, but I just found it so nuanced and moving, and you know I expected it to be a certain like a certain thing, but it was it, it defied my expectations. And that was I May Destroy You, um, which is, I think it's a BBC show, but I think it was ca- uh, carried on HBO, uh, written and directed and star- starring uh, Michaela Cole. Um, I think that's how you pronounce her last name, or Coel. And it's a brilliant show. Uh, I, I don't want to have any spoilers, but, but the show is essentially about a woman, a, a, a social media star slash author, um, who gets sexually assaulted in the first episode, and then kind of like the the what happens, the whole series is what happens to her, and you think it might be peachy and super, uh, you know, having a super kind of like progressive stance on sexual assault, um, but it's very very nuanced, it takes multiple perspectives, and um, I think it was you know both serious and funny, um, and just, just totally worth watching. Uh, did you see that show at all? No, you recommended it to me, um, and I meant to watch it, and then I sort of forgot. So this is a good reminder uh, to do that soon. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, and then uh, this one is, uh, it's a, more of a mini series, I guess, uh, but uh, so moving. I mean, it's totally dark and, and devastating. It's uh, the, uh, the, the, the show is called I Know This Much Is True, starring Mark Ruffalo, based on a Wally Lamb book. And it's just a tragic story of these twin brothers, one who's got uh, schizophrenia, um, the other who doesn't, who's just, you know, the caretaker, and just the story of these brothers and, and their life. Um, really disturbing, uh, but so well acted and, and, and yeah, just touching. Um, yeah. Man, I thought we were going to keep it positive. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, I just, my mind goes there, you well. I, I, I can't help it. Um, what about you? Any TV shows that kind of stood out for you? Um, well, I'll, I'll throw a couple out there real, real quick. Um, real quick. So I, I just finished the queen's gambit a couple days ago. Um, this is not going to be news to anybody, but if you're one of the like few holdouts, watch that show. It's awesome. It's about a woman who plays chess and has a drinking problem. And it's just great. It's just like, I, I don't know, like I, I know the rules of chess, but I don't know any of the strategy. So like, I couldn't really follow the games and a lot of it is around the games, but they still make it interesting. Even if you don't know or care about chess whatsoever, it's still super just, uh, fun to watch. Uh, and she's great. And I love her attitude. Um, and uh, the second thing I want to throw out there, I just got into this show, which is like now on season five called The Expanse, which is like a sci-fi kind of space opera show. It's on Amazon streaming. Um, it's it's really cool. It's like a lot of fun. It's you know, There's some cheesy moments, but uh, overall, I think it's like well-written, well-acted, um, cool ideas. And definitely like it's it's just super like compulsive watching like i blew through season one in like a few days i think it's just i like, kept wanting to watch more of it that sounds awesome i have to check that out so you wait you called it a space opera i had not heard this uh this term before oh yeah is that not a thing it's a, a yes yeah, space opera is sort of a uh, it has like, you know, aliens and spaceships and gunfights and it's like a western in space kind of all right, I had not heard that term. I like it. All right, I thought some, but you know, a couple. Name a few books that I've kind of read this year that I, that, that I liked. Um, so okay, one I'm just reading now, but it's hilarious. I decided a week ago that I want to be a birder. I think that would be fun. I, I I do like birds. I like looking at birds. And it would be fun knowing their names. I think that would just be a fun thing. Um, and. I, I was reading some, you know, some article uh, in the Globe and Mail a couple of weeks ago, and someone recommended, oh, if you're into birding, you've got to get uh, Kingbird Highway, which is apparently a classic of the genre, <laughs> written by Ken Kaufman. And it is, you know, it, it's, it's, it was written in the 90s, but uh, it, it's, it's, it's a memoir of Ken when I guess he was in his teens, uh, hitchhiking a, a, across the United States, um, just in search of birds and, and wanting to, um, uh, to have, you know, uh, the, to beat the record for the most number of species of birds in any one, in one year. <laughs> that is the premise of the book. Uh, so anyways, it, but it, it's actually surprisingly compelling. It has a bit of like, you know, a, a, a on the road feel. Um, it's more of a road trip book than a, than a book about birds, although it's clearly a book about birds too. Uh, so my newest fascination is birding motorcycle and birding. That's, you know, those go together, I think. Yeah. I, I was going to say it's maybe like Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, but with a kind of bird focus. 
Yes, yes, exactly. Um, but but so far, uh, so far that's been uh, lots of fun. Um, I uh, okay. Another book that it's actually written by one of our guests. Um, so the weirdest people in the world uh, by by Joe Henrik, uh, how the West became psychologically peculiar and particularly prosperous. That is an incredible book. I mean, I just you know maybe I'm maybe I'm in love with it too much, but I just think this is going to be a classic text for psychology, anthropology, history, um, evolutionary psychology for a long, long time. It's going to be like a classic, like the blank slate is a classic or the selfish gene. Um, It's fantastic. I think it's going to be the source of many dissertations and theses. Um, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, one of my favorite books in a long, long time. I cannot recommend it uh, enough. Awesome. Yeah. I, I have to admit, I have not read that one yet. Um, and it's, uh, another one of those things that's like kind of on my list of, uh, things that I ought to do. So maybe next year when I'm not teaching, I will pick that up. Yeah. I mean, it is daunting when, when I got it delivered from, from Amazon, I was like, I literally didn't want to look at it for two weeks. I'm like, Oh my God. I think, I think it's, it's wider than my Bible. Um, I think it's it's like it's it's really really uh, it's in the end it's about seven hundred pages of or not quite seven hundred pages I forget now the, 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 how long the actual book is but you know then there's like you know another fifty percent of the book is just devoted to endnotes uh, and end, the index and 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 so it's it is long but it's not quite as long as the the thickness of the tome and have you believe awesome. Um, okay. Well, so I, I guess the advice is don't be intimidated by its heft. Just dive in and it's, uh, uh, it'll grab you. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, if you're a fan of psychology, uh, and about, uh, human nature, quote unquote, quote unquote, human nature or Western nature, I mean, it's totally fascinating. Okay. I have one more book just to make fun of myself, you will. And then maybe you can recommend some if you have any. Um, so, you know, I, I know, you know, this about me, you like I'm, uh, uh, I don't, I, I don't have refined tastes. <laughs> I like comfort food. I, so one thing that I hate, maybe we'll talk about music in a little bit, but like when people will, you know, there'll be these, these little kind of things on Twitter, you know, what songs were you listening to in high school or what were your, you know, your, your most listened to songs and, you know, in your, in, you know, you know, your teen years and people are like talking about all this, like, you know, avant-garde music for the time or indie music at the time. And I'm like, fuck you. There's a reason Culture Club was popular in the 80s. A lot of people listen to them. So some people will have to have had to listen to them. I will be the one to admit, yeah, I like Duran Duran. I, in fact, paid Michael Goldberg, you know, 25 cents in grade eight to print, um, you know, with a, with a matrix printer in 1986, you know, Michael Inslick, number one Duran Duran fan. I got that printed. I paid him to print it for me. And then I glued it onto my wall in my bedroom. Uh, you know, that, I'm honest that way. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I can't think of a story that <laughs> better captures your essence. But this was all a lead up to you recommending a book, which now I really want to know what this is. Exactly. So I'm not a bit. So this is a book that uh, I got as a gift. Um and I read it in like a, in like in a few hours. It was so good. It's uh, I think it's classified under young adult fiction, <laughs> and it's a book called The Ballad of Songbird and Snakes. It's uh, from the Hunger Games. Uh, uh, I guess there's a trilogy. I, I say I guess I know I read them. Um, and uh, this is a prequel uh, to uh, the trilogy by Suzanne Collins. 
I'm sure they'll make a, a movie of it, uh, and I will, I will watch the movie as well. Uh, that is that is excellent. Um, I don't have too much to add to this. Uh, I will I'll, I'll throw out sort of a weird plug, um, which is just for what I'm currently reading. Uh, the book One Q eighty four. Do you know this book? No, I haven't heard of it. Uh, so it's by uh, Haruki Murakami. He's a Japanese author. He's very prolific. He's probably the best known Japanese author. He's been translated a lot. Um, speaking of being intimidated, I've always been a fan of his. I've read a lot of his stuff. Um, and this book is just fucking enormous. And so I was like, like a little put off by that. I was like, oh, I don't know what I'd be getting into if I pick this thing up. It seems like a lot. And then, you know, pandemic, more spare time. I was like, now is the time. If I'm ever going to read it, I'm going to read it now. Right? <laughs> and it's great. And it's totally, it does not feel long, right? I'm like halfway through it and I'm like very much like grabbed by it and and want to find out what happens next and it's just flying by so if you're a murakami fan and you've been thinking uh should i read that book or not it seems enormous i would say go for it so i know we're running out of time but maybe one last thing and this is like kind of a moment of of, of gratitude and thanks um I, I i just put a list together of all our guests and we've had so many guests this year and they've all been so much fun to have. And I think we've learned so much from each of them. Um, so just want to kind of just thank them all. So, you know, starting from the beginning, Rob Willer, Liz Page Gould, Josh Tiber, Nina Strominger, Scott Barry Kaufman, uh, David Pizarro and Tamara Summers, Keith Maddox, Rachel Rattan, Evan Thompson, Claudia Haas, Neil Lewis Jr., Rob Willer and Samin Vizier, Joe Henrik, Maria Konakova, Michael McCullough, Ann Wilson, and just last week, um, Katie Kinsler. So thank you to all of them uh, for you know uh, for you know giving giving us your time and um, yeah and 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 just spending a little bit of time with us and our listeners. So thank you so much. Wow, that is that's a hell of a list, uh, and it's amazing to hear them all together like that. Um, and I and I guess I'll just throw in um, thanks to all of you for for listening, for emailing, for interacting with us in other ways. It's been a lot of fun. I'm still shocked by how many people listen to this show like seriously that's not like false modesty i'm like literally shocked a anytime anybody's like hey i listen to your show i like it uh, it's wild um and it's been great and we hope to keep doing it for a long time yeah that's right so thanks so much and you know uh, i think this is going to air right before the new year um, so, uh, have a good one everyone happy new year uh, enjoy let's just hope 2021 is better than 2020 you know, regression to the mean suggests that it will be. Yes. Yes. Regression to the mean for the win. Awesome. Thanks, Mickey. Thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, talk to you next year.